The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There is no incentive for platforms to be investing a lot of effort into trying to make the decision about whether something is AI generated or not because they face a lot of liability if they guess wrong. And so it's going to place even more burden on the pipeline and potentially divert resources from intervening in actual abuse cases. This is a a system that simply was never built to deal with trying to spot novel synthetic media and that keeps having to be kind of revamped as they go along on this massive rocket ship to try and keep it going to deal with the ongoing upticks in material year over year. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for February 5th, 2024. One of the dark sides of the rapid development of artificial intelligence and machine learning is the increase in computer-generated child pornography and other child sexual abuse material, or CG-CSAM for short. This material threatens to overwhelm the attempts of online platforms to filter for harmful content and of prosecutors to bring those who create and disseminate CG-CSAM to justice. But it also raises complex statutory and constitutional legal issues as to what types of computer-generated CSAM are and are not legal. To explore these issues, I spoke with Rihanna Pfefferkorn, a research scholar at the Stanford Internet Observatory, who has just published a new white paper in Lawfare's ongoing digital social contract paper series, exploring the legal and policy implications of CGCSAM. Joining in the discussion was her colleague David Thiel, Stanford Internet Observatory's chief technologist and a co-author of an important technical analysis of the recent increase in CGCSAM. It's a Lawfare podcast, February 5th. Rihanna Pfefferkorn and David Thiel on how to fight computer-generated child sexual abuse material. I want to actually start with a really interesting and important paper that you, David, co-authored with some some collaborators at at Stanford and at Thorne, the uh, nonprofit devoted to uh, countering sex trafficking and child exploitation. And it's a paper called Generative ML and CSAM, Implications and Mitigations. And it's kind of a technical description of the, the lay of the land of the use of generative uh, machine learning techniques to create child uh, sex material. And I want to start with it in part because it's interesting in and of its own right, but also because it's kind of the empirical backdrop to the legal and, and policy work that, Rihanna, you you did in your paper. So I think it's useful to kind of level set there. So David, can you just give a kind of an overview of, of what this research project was and, and what you and your collaborators found? Sure. So kind of in response to some inbound inquiries that we had from media and policymakers, 
we started doing some investigation kind of into the advances that had been made during 2023 specifically in generating explicit content with generative ML. We reached out to Thorin specifically in the context of CSAM to see if they had seen an increase in activity here. And they stated that they had seen uh, a significant uptick in material depicting child sexual abuse uh, that appeared to be using generative ML. In 2022, this was almost non-existent. You know, there had been attempts, but since the release of Stable Diffusion 1.5, a rather large open source community popped up around expanding the capabilities of that model and researchers coming up with ways to do fine-tuning of models in ways that uh, did not require anything near the level of resources that had been previously required to modify these generative models. So we did basically an overview of the technologies that had uh, been implemented that made this very easy. Previously, it would have cost like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do a significant amount of retraining. Uh, But at this point, people are able to do it for a few hundred dollars and they can do it at home without having a, a cloud computing environment. So a few examples of things that had been developed during 2023, or at least um, widely implemented, were things like textual inversion and what are referred to as LORAs, uh, or low-rank adaptations. These are tools that basically, they're very small. They're nowhere near as big as machine learning models. They can be trained on a relatively small number of images, uh, and they can teach models new concepts, And those were being used by explicit content creators to uh, come up with basically more accurate and detailed explicit content. The reason why this is useful is it means that uh, people don't have to mess as much with giving complex prompts to try and get the exact type of image that they want. Uh, They can nudge the model itself to be more likely to produce those types of images. So that was used for legal adult content, you know, to depict different types of sex acts, to depict different types of subjects in images themselves. Uh, But it had also been observed in that community that there were some problems with a lot of these models that were generating explicit content. People would have to explicitly note that you would have to tell the generator uh, in what's called a negative prompt, which is just you describe all the things you don't want to see, they would have to say, uh, put child in your negative prompt and things like that. Meaning that basically if you did not specify very explicitly that you did not want children to be depicted in this explicit material, they would be rendered. And this was fairly commonly known among the community that was producing this explicit content. Unsurprisingly, there were communities that Uh, were dedicated to doing the exact opposite and making it so that the resulting imagery did depict children. They used a number of tools that could be basically age reducers of the subjects that were depicted. 
they, they would use that potentially to, you know, age reduce well-known celebrities and depict material that way. And then there were also, you know, newer tools like ControlNet, which allowed people to basically say exactly what kind of pose they wanted by providing like a human skeleton model effectively and using that to guide the, the generative output. So all of those things combined resulted in an environment where a fairly large amount of material was being generated on a daily basis. Uh, that material was getting more and more photorealistic. And, you know, according to detectors that Thorne had implemented that gauge photorealism of material without actually having to examine it. And the chats that had been analyzed in those communities indicated that there was a very strong current of trying to make things as realistic as possible, as, you know, undifferentiable as possible. It's not the entirety of those communities, but it is a significant uh, thread within them. How much more technical innovation is there to be had in this space? In other words, have we reached the point where these models are now producing sort of as photorealistic images as anyone would want if they're trying to produce or consume CSAM? Or should we expect that as the pace of machine learning increases, right, as it has done in a kind of dramatic way over the past several years, the situation is going to get even worse, either because they're going to get even more photorealistic or they're going to get even cheaper to make, or you can make videos or you can make, you know, 3D scenes or, 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 you know, in other words, how do you see this technology developing on a technological basis in the next several years? So when it comes to photorealism, I think when we've talked to various child safety organizations and to law enforcement, and they're definitely getting an, a decent amount of material that is difficult for them to distinguish between photographic material. We've definitely gone past the point where with adult content or generating people in general, uh, you can fool people that are not already primed, you know, looking to differentiate it. So I think we're, we're well past the point where an average person can be you know, fooled into thinking that this is an actual photograph. In terms of where it's going to, going to develop, I mean, I think that's basically what we are expecting is that, you know, there are going to be video models that become more compelling. We have, you know, as, as an industry, there are fewer technologies to help do detection on that type of novel content. But when it comes to static imagery, I think it'll mostly just become easier and easier. You won't have to mess with prompts as much. Um, newer models are kind of designed so that there's less kind of hand waving and keywords that don't really make sense. Like, you know, saying like, oh, this is trending on art station or something because we know that makes it have high quality. You know, those weird little maneuvers are becoming less and less necessary for, for generative models in general. So let's turn now to Rihanna's paper and talk about the, the legal implications of all of this. Before we get to how the law should and can deal with computer-generated CSAM, let's just talk about how the law deals with regular old CSAM. In your paper, you distinguish between sort of two offenses under at least federal law that apply here. One is about child pornography itself, and the other is about obscenity. And so if you could just give an overview of what these two clusters of prohibitions are, and also in particular how they relate. I think for a lot of folks, 
it's it's understandable why not all obscene things are necessarily child pornography, but it might be a little confusing to know that actually not all things that are child pornography are necessarily obscene. And so if you could sort of unpack that, I think it's really important before we then get into the, the First Amendment questions about uh, computer-generated CSAM. Sure. So it's probably familiar to most people listening to this particular podcast that the First Amendment generally has relatively few carve-outs for what is actually completely unprotected speech. And among those are carve-outs for obscenity and separately, as you mentioned, for child pornography, more commonly now called child sex abuse material, um, or CSAM for short, although child pornography is still the phrase uh, on the books. Obscenity has never been protected by the First Amendment. This goes back you know, hundreds of years. And the rationale for that is that it has basically no redeeming value um, and is outweighed, any value it might have is outweighed by protecting the social interest in maintaining order and morality. It sounds a little bit antiquated maybe to, to modern ears. And the familiar test for something being obscene is the three-part Miller test of whether an average person applying contemporary community standards would find that a particular work taken as a whole appeals to the Parian interest, whether that work describes or depicts in a patently offensive way sexual conduct as defined under state law, and whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. And and, and just to jump in, this this is where that famous, uh, I think, Lewis Powell, Justice Lewis Powell, I know it when I see it, comes in and trying to figure out, you know, at what point something goes from, you know, First Amendment protected artistic erotica to just obscene pornography and therefore would not be protected. Right. Um, however, we, we don't just leave uh, it up to juries and the government to decide they know it when they see it. We have a slightly more elucidated test there for, for juries to apply. And separately, there's a prohibition against uh, the creation or distribution, receipt, uh, pandering, etc. of CSAM. And the rationale there, as you mentioned, is is a little bit different, where Instead of it being on the touchstone of whether something is obscene or not, the idea is that this kind of speech is speech that's integral to criminal conduct, underlying abuse crimes that is harmful to children in various ways. And society has an overwhelmingly compelling interest in protecting children from suffering those harms. And in the 1982 Supreme Court case that upheld child pornography as being outside of First Amendment protections, the Supreme Court said, look, whether something has serious literary or artistic value is totally unconnected to the inquiry of whether a child is being harmed from undergoing this type of abuse and having it documented. And so the court said the obscenity um, rationale for prohibiting speech just doesn't really apply here. We are going to prohibit this sort of speech on separate grounds. Um, But as you mentioned, Alan, it may be a little less than intuitive that there's a difference between these two things. And the courts since then have observed that a lot of the time something that constitutes CSAM is often going to be obscene as well. There's not a 100% overlap in the Venn diagram. There is some material, as we'll discuss, especially in the computer-generated space, that might not be obscene. But nevertheless, they are two separate and distinct rationales for finding that these two different categories of speech are not covered covered by the First Amendment. And, and just to sort of make that concrete, so like one could imagine, for example, you know, an, an image of, of a child that, you know, who is being sexually abused, but that image is journalistic, right? It's meant to sort of explain a thing that's happening. That that might be CSAM right, as defined, but it might not necessarily be obscene. And so uh, sort of different legal regimes would apply and therefore different First Amendment doctrines as, as well. So let's take each of these two in turn. And actually, let's start with 
the specific CSAM prohibitions? Because my understanding from your paper is that's where most of the sort of prosecution happens. Uh, and so sort of the, the main the main law here is uh, section, it's called section uh, 2252A, and in particular, a Supreme Court case from the early 2000s called Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition, which is, I think, sort of the first time the Supreme Court really waded into you know, what has since become this much bigger problem of computer-generated CSAM. So just explain what that case was about and, and why that's sort of the, one of the touchstone cases for trying to think about how to deal with this problem you know, today in 2024, you know, more than 20 years later. Sure. So Section 2252A of Title 18 bans child pornography, or CSAM as we would now refer to it, and it bans the possession, it bans the receipt, it bans the distribution. There's a separate statute for production, actually. Uh, but 2252A is kind of the workhorse for federal CSAM prosecutions. And in banning child pornography, it is referring to the statutory definition in Section 2256, sub 8, um, which covers a few different categories. One is if the material is something that was produced using real children. It's a depiction of uh, a minor in sexually explicit context. Um, another is uh, imagery that is or is indistinguishable from a depiction of a real child being abused. And the final category is what's typically called morphed images, although that's not the phrase that's actually in the statutory definition. And that is uh, imagery that has been altered so as to make it look like an identifiable minor is in a sexually explicit conduct or pose. And That is the language on the books now, but as you mentioned, there was a 2002 case involving a prior version of the definition of child pornography, which had previously prohibited, uh, under the original 1996 statute, an image that is or appears to be that of a minor in sexually explicit uh, conduct. And that was the portion, specifically the appears to be portion, that the Supreme Court ended up striking down as unconstitutional in the Free Speech Coalition case. And there the Supreme Court held that the rationale that it had elucidated 20 years earlier in the New York v. Ferber case was that the reason that child pornography is prohibited and falls outside the First Amendment is that it involves harm to real children. And the court said here, where you have what the court called virtual child pornography, virtual CSAM, there is no harm to any real child in the creation of a computer-generated image, for example. And therefore, that rationale of protecting children, of speech that's integral to criminal conduct, just doesn't apply. And therefore, the court threw out that appears to be portion of the definition of CSAM. And so that was what the, when, after the Supreme Court issued that ruling, Congress went back to the drawing board in 2003 and updated that particular provision of the definition of CSAM to its present uh, definition of including computer generated imagery that is or is indistinguishable from an image of an actual child being abused. Um, And that has actually never been tested, subject to a constitutional challenge, although it's hard to see that much daylight, really, I think, between saying something is a computer-generated image that appears to be of an actual child being abused versus saying something is a computer-generated image that is indistinguishable from that of a real child being abused. So how then does the current case law on First Amendment protections for at least some categories of computer generated or virtual CSAM. How do those apply today, right? If you're trying to think through the the categories, what is and is not then protected? So there are some low-hanging fruit here, which is if it is a depiction of an actual child actually being abused, 
what I would call photographic CSAM in my paper, then that is prohibited. That's the New York versus Ferber case. It's still real imagery. It doesn't matter whether it's obscene or not. Um, it can be prohibited. If we have a computer-generated image that is obscene or an image of actual abuse that is obscene, well, then it falls under the Miller rationale for finding that to be outside of First Amendment protection, and it can be prohibited on that basis. And so if a computer-generated image qualifies as legally obscene under that three-part Miller test, it can be prohibited. And then we get into areas where I think there's a bit more nuance when we're talking about computer-generated imagery, particularly uh, in the generative AI context, where we're looking at both what is the input for the model that yields the, the image and what is the output of that image. Where you have a morphed image, meaning it depicts an identifiable minor, whether that's Sally Smith from ninth grade homeroom or whether that's a child celebrity or child influencer, for example, that morphed image that has altered um, some underlying image to make it look like a, that identifiable child is in a sexually explicit pose or conduct, then I think that is going to be the low-hanging fruit again for the courts as they start to consider computer-generated imagery. The morphed images prong of the definition of CSAM was not in front of the court in Free Speech Coalition, um, but multiple courts of appeals have said that it's not First Amendment protected or that it's at least not protected speech when it is being disseminated beyond just whoever created it to begin with. If they keep it to themselves, it's not actually prohibited under the law on the book. But when it gets disseminated, whether that's to everybody in ninth grade homeroom or whether that's being put up on the internet or whether it's just being sent to the victim themselves, then the courts would say that's not protected speech and it doesn't matter if it was photoshopped or created virtually. Uh, free speech coalition just doesn't apply because of the harms to the child there. Even though the child isn't being directly abuse themselves, there are still privacy harms, reputational harms, emotional and mental harms from being victimized with a morphed image. And so for the sorts of cases that we're seeing out there cropping up in the news more recently of real life teenagers who are being victimized in this way with pornographic deepfakes of teenage girls most commonly, um, I think it will be fairly easy to say existing law, the statute on the books prohibits that and Free Speech Coalition does not come into it. Where things get a little more difficult, I think, is if a particular generative AI you know, output was trained on images of actual abuse in the data set, then I think it's very likely that the courts would say that that can be prohibited on the same rationale as photographic imagery itself, like the actual underlying images in the training data, because the reuse of those images to generate a new image, a computer-generated image, is still harming the children who were depicted in the underlying abuse imagery. That's my prediction for where the courts might come out once they have to start considering generative AI outputs like this. And there, it wouldn't necessarily matter whether it's photorealistic or not. I think what the courts would focus on there is, is this re-harming children in actual abuse images by training the, the model that created the image on the output end? And then finally, where I think the, the statute Tory language nominally prohibits an image, but where I don't think it would hold up to um, constitutional scrutiny is where there is a computer-generated image that is photorealistic because that falls so squarely within the statutory language about an image that is indistinguishable from a photographic abuse image. And there it might not necessarily matter if the training data did or did not include actual photographic abuse imagery. But there I think if prosecutors were to rely upon that indistinguishable from provision uh, on the books right now, 
because it is something that's photorealistic and it's hard to tell if this is a real image or not, that's where we might see a test of that previously so far untested language about computer generated images that are indistinguishable from actual abuse imagery. Um, and so I think that there may be some incentives for prosecutors to try and find other ways to bring uh, offenders to justice rather than potentially to risk having another free speech coalition style case that strikes down uh, this revised portion of the statute. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. And it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes 
any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So b- before we get to that question of sort of alternatives to using the child pornography, the, the CSAM statute, I actually want to turn to you, David, because one thing Rihanna mentioned was this question of um, you know, what happens if the image itself is not of an identifiable child, but that the the, the model that's generated, it has been trained on real CSAM. And I want to ask you, because you actually late last year, you uh, released a, a very interesting report that I think kind of made a big splash about how actually the CSAM images are actually prevalent, or at least uh, links to those images are prevalent in some major open source uh, data sets of images that are often used for otherwise totally legitimate image machine learning. Um, and so I was hoping you could just sort of talk about that and and what the sort of status of this is in the sort of broader community. Because you know, if it is the case that these images have found themselves into a lot of these foundational models, that, that just seems a big problem, even beyond um, the issue of those models then being used to create CSAM itself. Sure. So in, in that study, basically what we did was we took uh, one of the most prominent data sets, uh, sets of images, that was used to train the models most frequently used to produce both legal explicit material uh, and used to produce CSAM. And that that model being Lion 5B, it's about almost 6 billion images that were scraped from uh, the internet in a fairly wide crawl. To, to do that, given that we were dealing with almost 6 billion images, we uh, basically took a, a safety predictor cutoff and ran the URLs to those original images through an API provided by Microsoft that recognizes known instances of CSAM. About 30% of all of those images were already down. These data sets are just links to images and not the images themselves. And this is for copyright and other liability concerns of redistributing sets of images. And what we found was that there are on the order of 
maybe a thousand to three thousand or so instances that we could identify through a combination of using photo DNA uh, and also interrogating the the model itself to ask what other images are similar to these, and then working with a child safety organization to do manual verification. So there are at least several thousand images that are likely to be CSAM. We were able to work with those organizations to verify that um, you know minimum 1,000 were known instances. And we also know that it doesn't take a lot of instances to train a model on a new concept. You can teach, uh, teach a model a new character, a new subject or style with you know, a couple of dozen images. So, and some of these were reinforced because they appeared over and over again in the data set. So we, we have confirmation that at least uh, some of the training material of these models uh, when it comes to explicit content was actual CSAM that these models were trained on. We also know that these models uh, were trained on many images of children, of real children, and many images of uh, explicit activity. So that combination of factors, when you show that models have been trained on CSAM, models have been trained on existing children, and they're capable of producing these explicit outputs, I, you know, I don't think anybody had, you know, no one had considered what that constitutes when it comes to morphed imagery uh, or whether you're transforming an image. So, uh, you know, even if you're taking an image of an existing child and using the model's concept of that to produce new explicit material, you know, it's unclear whether that, you know, whether people were really thinking about that as morphed imagery in the, the classic sense. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Rihanna. Well, I'll add that the statutory definition of morphed imagery requires that there be an identifiable child in the output of the picture. So where it is not, if it's sort of a, this person does not exist type situation where it isn't depicting a real person, where it is even an output that isn't depicting a child at all or not a sexual situation at all. That's where I think, you know, I touch on this extremely briefly in the paper because David, you put this research out right before we went to press on the paper. Um, but I think there's some really interesting questions there about like how broadly can you take the rationale for prohibiting actual photographic CSAM, which is it harms children, it's reuse and uh, recirculation harms children. And how far can that actually apply to any First Amendment argument that you can also prohibit the output of uh, abuse trained models where the output is not child sexual abuse material? I don't think it's the law or that we want it to be the law that everybody who unwittingly downloaded the Lion 5B dataset, not knowing or having any reason to know that it contained links to actual abuse imagery, that all of those people are criminals. I mean, this is why we have knowledge requirements in the laws on the books, including the statutes that we've been talking about today. And I think that you get a much more attenuated argument for why an image that has nothing about a child or nothing about sexual explicit conduct in it, uh, but that has somewhere in its metaphorical DNA, actual abuse imagery, that that should be prohibited. I think that's going to be quite a conundrum for the courts. But if anything, it might be kind of the opposite of what I think is going to be the more common situation, which is rather than saying, we know what was in the training set and the output is not CSAM, the more common situation that I think investigators are going to be confronted with is the output is CSAM, but we don't know A, whether this is AI generated or an actual image of an actual child, and B, 
what was in the training data to begin with, because a lot of the times the provenance of an image that's been floating around amongst different communities or on the dark web is probably going to be unknown and difficult, if not impossible, to determine. So let's talk about what all this means for the fight against CSAM and for our purposes against um, computer-generated CSAM. Rihanna, you spent a lot of time talking about how the rise of this technology, as well as the limitations that the courts in the First Amendment put on at least certain attempts to fight it will affect prosecutors. Um, and so I was hoping you could give sort of an overview of that. How do you expect prosecutors to, to deal with this, what sounds from you know, David's research to be a deluge of this kind of harmful material? So I think there are a few different things. Like, I mean, it's going to be trade-offs all the way down and triaging cases is tough enough as it is. There are so many reports that go into the desks of various law enforcement officers all over the country right now that involve what has heretofore indisputably been actual photographic abuse imagery, um, that even triaging those can be really difficult to figure out what to follow up on or whatnot, when, especially when you also may have missing persons cases or homicide or whatever else that you might need to deal with as well. Um, and having now computer-generated images added to the pile is going to make it even more difficult. I think there are a few different things that investigators and prosecutors are going to be thinking about. One is whether there is an appetite to square up that constitutional challenge about material that may actually be fully virtual, meaning there's no abuse material in the training set and the output isn't a morphed image, and try and see, like, can we prosecute under that uh, indistinguishable from language that's on the books or not? If prosecutors don't want to deal with that, then they will need to know, like, as an evidentiary matter, is this a real an image of an actual identifiable child? What was in the training data? And that, as I said, might not necessarily be very readily apparent. Um, so a couple of different strategies that prosecutors might use. One might be to decrease reliance on Section 2252A, the CSAM statute, and instead rely on the child obscenity statute, Section 1466A. One thing that was surprising to me when I was doing this research was to find that for the 20 years that the child obscenity statute has been on the books, it's been used or at least cited in, in federal court cases, fewer than 150 times. And the CSAM statute, section 2252A, has been cited more than 50 times as many as the, as the child obscenity statute. Like They just don't really use the child obscenity statute. If I were to speculate about why that is, it would probably be that it is effectively a strict liability offense to possess actual photographic CSAM, whereas in order to obtain a conviction under 1466A, prosecutors would need to go through that three-pronged Miller test to the satisfaction of a jury. But they don't have to prove that a real child was involved. It's a defense to a charge of possessing CSAM that everybody in it was an adult or that no real child was in it, meaning it's a fully virtual image. That's not a defense to a child obscenity uh, statute. And so to the degree that there is a fair amount of overlap where a lot of CSAM imagery, whether it is photographic or virtual, will also be obscene, we might see prosecutors shift to reliance on the child obscenity statute instead. But that will take more work. It may be longer rather than get in going to trial more often, rather than having defendants plead out a lot. Um, and I'm also sort of concerned about the degree to which reliance on obscenity doctrine lets in jurors' biases. Um, one of the things discussed in the paper is that even well into the 1990s in obscenity cases, 
juries were finding material to be obscene under Miller because it involved homosexual conduct, where if it had been heterosexual conduct, maybe that would not have been the conclusion after all. And now that we live in an era where there is a huge backlash against the very existence of queer and trans people um, and a renewed tide of hatred and violence and laws to discriminate against them, I don't think it will do justice to use uh, obscenity doctrine and thereby let the deciding factor in whether somebody goes to prison or not for child obscenity be whether the accused image depicts a trans body instead of a cisgender body or depicts uh, homosexual conduct rather than heterosexual conduct. So there are some drawbacks to uh, increased reliance on the child obscenity statute rather than the CSAM statute, but that might be something that becomes more common if it becomes difficult to tell, is this an image of a real child or not? But another option, and one that I've spoken with some child safety folks about that they seem to agree, is that instead of charging somebody for what is possibly or believed to be computer-generated imagery, to simply charge defendants for the photographic actual CSAM that they also possess. Defendants in these sorts of cases tend to own a large volume of actual photographic CSAM and They can and have been charged on that basis rather than charged for the drawings, cartoons, virtual computer generated materials that they also were found to possess. So if an investigation shows based, you know, that may have been instigated by a believed to be AI generated image, an investigation shows that there are lots of images of actual CSAM on the defendant's devices they can be prosecuted for that instead. This avoids the evidentiary questions of what's in the training data. It avoids the First Amendment questions um, because photographic CSAM is incontrovertibly uh, outside of First Amendment protection. And I think it would more properly focus prosecutorial limited resources on cases involving harm to actual children rather than going on what might be a wild goose chase trying to determine, can we prosecute this AI-generated image or not? But there's not going to be any easy answers here. Like I said, like the triaging is going to involve difficult decisions and trade-offs in any event. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as we know, you know, we haven't seen that case where a where somebody has been prosecuted for purely computer-generated imagery because they do usually possess those other images. And part of that is because the communities that are producing a lot of this generated imagery they are actually training extensions based on known victims and known instances of CSAM to generate new imagery. Uh, so because that community is is interested in or tends to be interested in this existing landscape of uh, CSAM that has been present for years, they you know they have particular victims that they want to replicate. The cases where people just have generated material on their own machine that they have not, you know, interacted with any other material, I think it's going to be something something rare. In addition to the role of prosecutors, I, I do want to also touch on the role of the platforms themselves, um, because obviously they're the the front line in terms of detecting this, you know, reporting it, screening it. Rihanna, what what do you expect to be the effects on the platforms of again this what potentially might just be a kind of orders of magnitude larger amount of CSAM, whether or not it's computer generated or not? As things stand, there's already existing federal law that requires online platforms to report quote unquote apparent violations of the CSAM laws when they detect it on their services. Um, and the violations they have to report include violations of section 22, 2252A, but actually not of 1466A. But so 
if they see a parent CSAM on their services, they don't have to go looking for it, although many voluntarily do, um, and use various automated tools to try and scan their platforms at scale to find this content. Once they do have actual knowledge of it, they are required to report it through a pipeline called the Cyber Tip Line, which is run by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMIC for short. And then NICMIC acts as a clearinghouse that takes those incoming reports from platforms, uh, figures out which jurisdiction they need to go out to, and routes it out to the appropriate law enforcement agency. And as things stand, the Cyber Tip Line receives well over 30 million reports from platforms a year in recent years. I think they're going to release their 2023 report on uh, those numbers uh, sometime in March. Um, and so when you already have almost 32 million instances from platforms reporting in 2022 alone, um, that is a huge burden for a relatively small organization like NICMIC to deal with, much less the various uh, recipients for, uh, on the law enforcement end of all those reports to figure out what to do about each of those uh, each of those reports, whether they are something that they need to act on and follow up on, or whether it's something that um, they lack enough information to follow up on, or maybe doesn't necessarily even violate the law uh, in a particular jurisdiction, since the vast bulk of these reports go internationally. Um, and so, when you have these reporting obligations, though, not only is there a lot that's being reported. It also means that there are lots of incentives to over-report. And the reason for that is because non-compliance by a platform with its reporting obligations is a punishable offense with hefty fines attached to it. And on the flip side, platforms are generally immune from if they report an image that does not actually meet the statutory definition of CSAM. So failing to report actual material leads to legal liability. It leads to bad PR. You get yelled at by Congress like the several tech CEOs were earlier this week, as of the week that we're recording. But you don't face liability for reporting something that isn't actually CSAM. And therefore, as we already see, platforms will report things that don't meet the statutory definition. They report cartoons, even though that's specifically excluded from the definition uh, of what constitutes child pornography. They report photos that pediatricians ask parents to take of their children and send to the pediatrician over email. Um, and so that's all something that uh, NICMIC and law enforcement has to wade through to try and separate wheat from chaff, as it were. And once you start adding in AI-generated material, platforms are just going to report all of that too. There is no incentive for platforms to be investing a lot of effort into trying to make the decision about whether something is AI-generated or not because they face a lot of liability if they guess wrong. And so it's going to place even more burden on the pipeline and potentially divert resources from intervening in actual abuse cases. This is a, a system that simply was never built to deal with trying to spot novel synthetic media. And that keeps having to be kind of revamped as they go along on this massive rocket ship to try and keep it going to deal with the ongoing upticks in material year over year. Yeah. And, and one of the things that the existing ecosystem of detection and reporting of CSAM was based on was what is a fairly what is a, a fairly accurate and non-resource intensive way of detecting already known material, which just would recirculate endlessly online with production of new material being certainly there, but not nearly at the volume that it can be with synthetically produced material. So given how many new instances are being produced every day, the actual methods of detection for these platforms are also getting more complicated uh, because it takes some time for those 
images to be identified, have their fingerprints added to centralized databases that all of the platforms can then use, and then do new detection. So uh, it's going to be fairly complicated to resolve that from the platform's point of view. But I also want to maybe expand a little bit the uh, what we think of as a platform in this regard. So certainly, uh, there's a lot of well-established practices when it comes to social media platforms, file sharing platforms, things like that. Um, but we also have platforms that are made to share things like machine learning data sets and generative models and augmentations to those models that do things like make subjects look younger, uh, make explicit material easier to generate. So part of the question that has been raised is what are the responsibilities of those platforms that basically host community-produced augmentations and models that make producing this content easier. And that is, legally, it's, it's difficult to say, but when it comes to like technical measures, there are some things that can be done to make existing models much more resistant to producing CSAM. Uh, you can use what has been called a, a few different things, but concept erasure is basically uh, what it boils down to, where you uh, effectively retrain a model so that it's really bad at producing a particular thing. And so you can actually retrain a model, you know, basically resume where it stopped its training, start it again, and say, hey, this is what a child is. You don't know what that is. You're a model that knows how to produce explicit material. Uh, you should not know what children are. And that actually does appear to work to some degree from what we've heard from these platforms. So there, there is a possibility that there may become a new standard of practice of taking, you know, if you're a commercial platform distributing these models or augmentations, you know, some degree of responsibility for making sure that they can't out, output both explicit material and imagery of children and thus be able to combine them. So I want to finish by thinking about some other potential policy responses whether it's from Congress or the administration. Rihanna, you have some some interesting thoughts in the paper, and I'd love for you to sort of give an overview of them. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think the first thing is just to say that this is a complex problem that doesn't admit of very easy solutions, and policymakers need to treat it with the nuance that it requires. Understandably, the knee-jerk reaction is just to ban everything that's computer-generated CSAM because it's hard to tell what's a real from what's computer generated, or because we find this sort of material repugnant. But this is an area where the Constitution does have something to say. And so rather than focusing on potentially First Amendment violative proposals, policymakers need to be digging in a little further, and especially digging in, I think, on, on the technical issue. It is a good question what sort of additional resources NICMIC and law enforcement will need in order to handle the influx that they're going to get of CGCSAM into the cyber tip line. You can imagine a world where uh, platforms are excused from reporting CG material if they have a good faith belief that something was AI generated. I don't think that would catch on though. Um, so I doubt that that's something we're going to see. And so I think if you just have the existing reporting where it's going to be even more than they have right now, it seems like there's going to need to be some investment in technical assistance for NICMIC and for law enforcement to try and do a better job of detection and provenance questions. One thing that seems to be very low-hanging fruit at the state level, and the paper mostly focuses on federal policy, but it turns out that some states don't have a morphed image provision in their state-level CSAM laws. And so for the states to add that, if they don't have it already, would 
help with a lot of the real world harms that are currently already happening in terms of non-consensual deep fake imagery of teenage girls, which means it's CSAM when it's underage, uh, underage children. And that would go a long way right now to, to help the existing real people who are directly being harmed um, and are being told over and over again by state and local police that there's nothing under state law that they can do. On the federal level, I think there is room to potentially craft a very narrowly tailored law to prohibit the possession, manufacture, and sale of basically trafficking in uh, ML models that have been trained on actual abuse imagery. In general, the law strives not to prohibit general purpose technology. It's not illegal to own Photoshop. It's not illegal to own a digital camera. It is illegal to use Photoshop to make a morphed image. It's illegal to use a digital camera to create uh, photographic CSAM. So there would have to be some careful crafting to only narrowly target that particular misuse of machine learning models for training for the sorts of purposes that David was discussing. But we do have examples in current federal law where Congress has narrowly targeted uh, trafficking in devices for purposes that are solely illegal. For example, trafficking in devices for illegally wiretapping people's conversations or for circumventing digital rights management on copyright protected works. I'm not a big defender of the DMCA, but if you're going to use a trafficking in tools prohibition, if anything, it's much worthier if you want to apply it to the problem of abuse trained uh, ML models than in, in copyright, I would have to say. And so that would have to have a careful knowledge requirement, carefully tailored. But I think it's something that is uh, real gap in existing law because generative AI simply presents us with a different technological regime for the creation of this material than we've really been used to seeing before. So that's something that I think Congress could could look into doing. And then just overall, when uh, the White House released its national strategy, the executive order on AI uh, last fall, there were only a couple of mentions in there about prevention of AI-generated CSAM. And it just needs to be something that gets integrated into the overall national strategy that Congress and the executive branch use while being sensitive to the particular wrinkles here that make research and development much more difficult because you can own as many copies as you want of an image or video of slowed down Nancy Pelosi. You can't own as many images as you want of actual photographic CSAM. But I'm curious to hear what what David thinks in terms of other policy issues and what's possible on the technical side. Well, I, I do think that there are some, there are a couple of gaps that, you know, we have seen when it comes to particularly this issue of you know, undressing apps that have uh, that have circulated that have been used in multiple school environments to basically produce imagery of of underage actually existing kids. Like you mentioned, this the state laws that address that are are somewhat variable. It's unclear where that line between uh, this is a you know a naked photo versus this is an explicit photo. I, I do think, and you know, you may disagree on some of the specifics of implementation and probably be correct since you actually know things about the law. But I, I think in terms of having a, you know, something both at the state level and at the federal level that addresses non-consensual distribution of nude and or explicit imagery of underage kids is probably something that needs to be a little bit more thoroughly addressed uh, and, and explicitly addressed in a way that we don't see this you know, part of the reason why we were working on this paper in the first place is because we keep seeing this this reporting saying that like oh, nobody knows what to do when this happens. There doesn't seem to be any law addressing it. It's like no, there there are laws addressing it. It's just the the education about it 
and there are some gaps that need to be filled in on that federal level um, when it comes to non-consensual distribution of imagery at all, not just of underage kids. Uh, so I think uh, focusing on those gaps is is something that I would like to see. I think this is a good place to end it. Rihanna, David, thank you so much for for joining and for the really important research you're doing on this issue. Thanks for having us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.